Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest folks on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are usually Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarland, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. Sitting in for Dave for this episode is Sam Capilla. She's an educator at Texas State University teaching interactive. And I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster. They've invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Rachel Neighbors. Rachel is a self-employed front-end developer and UI engineer. She works on bringing the insights of comics and cartoons into the field of web development. And also, she likes boots. So at this time, we'll turn it over to Christopher and Sam in their conversation with Rachel. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, on the show today. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, Dave's out uh, busy saving, uh, saving us all from bad web design right now, so we can't make it today. But uh, yeah, so... Tell us a little bit about yourself. You're your educator. Yep. Um, I teach uh, responsive web design and intro to web design and typography at Texas State University, which is just half an hour south of Austin. Mm-hmm. And i um, been doing that for five years now. Yeah. And, um, you, and you've had uh, guest lecturers, too, that come down there? I have. I've had um, some folks from Happy Cog Austin come in, uh, the Paravel guys, a lot of responsive um, Web designers, um, Matthew Carter has Skyped in with our class before. It's It's been really great to have a lot of those folks come in. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I know it's, uh, you know, all these people that have come in there. I, I was there for the Happy Cog uh, lecture. I was in the audience. Um, so, you, I mean, you're really teaching uh, uh, your, your students, like, what's happening right now. And usually when, when I went to grad school for interactive, uh, they were telling and I had just finished my uh, first edition of the CSS cookbook with, you know, fluid lay- layouts and CSS enable layouts. Uh, they were teaching me uh, HTML table layouts. Uh, and, Good times. Uh, yeah. So, so it was really awesome that you're actually like, you know, so I always joke about there's like a five year delay between what, you know, what's out there in the real world and what's in school. There, so there definitely is. And we're definitely doing this for at least the next five years. <laughs> uh, we, uh, it was perfect timing. Just when Ethan's book came out, that's when we were readdressing everything. And I hadn't read the book yet and said, hey, what about this instead of our Flash class since we're moving that to animation? Mm. And they said, uh, okay, can you learn it? And I said, yep, sure. <laughs> and then it did. And then I've been teaching it for two years. Yeah, that's, that's definitely important. Like just uh, uh, always say yes. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, our guest today is Rachel Neighbors. I'm looking forward to talking to her. Hey, Rachel? Hi there. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming to the show. So happy to be here. We're honored to have you here. Um, Well, we always ask uh, out of the gate, the first question is, how did you get into our industry? Wow, that's a a long and varied story, so I'll try to keep it as short as possible. I was doing very well making an award-winning comic for teenage girls on an iVillage website called girl.com. That's girl.com with a U. And... Well, turned out that comics don't exactly pay the bills as well as I had hoped they would. And (laughs) I needed to move into an industry that offered health insurance as well. So I used to build the websites and cultivate my fan base that way, um, using various social media sites, building mm, email subscription newsletters, etc. And I thought, well, this seems useful. I'm sure somebody would pay me to do this and ended up getting into the field as a web designer. But I found out I liked the code, the front-end code specifically, a lot more than I liked designing websites, and ended up transitioning from web designer into front-end development. So 
Wow. Yeah, that was very brief. I mean, I don't say more to it, but uh, but how did you get into comics? Like, like what? Like how did you get into comics, and specifically how did you get to also comics to an iVillage village to? Or these were online comics or? Yeah, web comics. Um, yeah. I also self-published a couple of small uh, zines, as you would put it, little collections, and two graphic novels, which mm-hmm. were graphic novels long before they were ever on the internet. Although I do have them posted at rachelthegreat.com for free reading now. Um, it, it kind of a, a graceful uh, farewell gift to all of my readers. So... I started making comics long ago when I was like a, a little kid. I used to draw them and my mother always encouraged me, but I, it wasn't until I saw Chasing Amy that I realized that people, you know, could actually make a go of it. And I thought, I want to be an inker. I was 14 and <laughs> wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I decided to start practicing inking, yeah. but I didn't like inking other people's work at all. Oh, really? I wanted, I wanted to ink my own work. So I ended up making my own comics which I sent around to my friends and my family, and they all really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. And when the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation paid to have all of the local libraries fitted with computers and internet access, I realized, you know, I could put these online. And I convinced my mom to get us internet access. And we were lucky that we lived two miles from the main phone line, or else we wouldn't have been able to get it for another five years. Oh, wow. And uh, I started posting my comics on GeoCities. Remember GeoCities? <laughs> I remember all too well. At that time, Girl.com was owned by NBC, and they were advertising you know, quizzes and things on Yahoo's homepage. So I visited their site, saw that they had some web comics by other award-winning cartoonists like Lauren Feinstein, and I thought, I will, I will submit some of mine here. Maybe I could get paid. I was still a teenager at this time, so when they got back to me and said, we'll give you 75 bucks for this car, uh, comic, I was like, woohoo, made it. And uh, our, our relationship evolved, and over time, I, I realized that I wasn't going to have enough money to go to college, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, didn't have the resources or the car or anything to uh, uproot from rural Virginia to a, a big city. But I did manage to get this weekly comic going with Girl.com, then trans, uh, it, it, it switched hands over to iVillage. I had a weekly comic that was weekly income I could depend on. I was able to use that to move to a city with a bus system. And I was able to use the buses to get to conventions where I would sell the printed versions of the comic and spread the gospel, as it were. Cool. So that was a long long time ago, actually. I stopped making comics the same time I won the Kim Yale Award for Best New Female Talent. Mm -hmm. It was... It was the worst kick in the pants ever. You know, 2007, and I realized I have to get out of comics and go pursue a quote-unquote real job, which I'd been avoiding and putting off for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about web development and web design is that you don't actually need a college education to get started. You just need experience. And I'd already built several websites, including my first big website uh, in Drupal. And it's funny that I, I went directly from Drupal to WordPress at that time, but... Uh, it was mangapunk.com, and I had built it <laughs> as one of my first places to showcase my comics. And there was a small community of people who loved reading comics, specifically my comics, and, uh, and manga. And it was just such a friendly gathering place. So I always have these warm, fuzzy feelings about how the Internet can connect people in isolated regions and how great it is at bringing people together and helping them get their work out to eyes that would never see them. My whole 
the story, my whole award, all of those things would not have happened had it not been for the internet. That's really cool. So uh, I'm kind of interested, like, so where were you, like, so you moved to a city with, um, so, so I mean, I, I'm just kind of interested, like, I'm all over the place, I'm like, trying to figure out, like, oh, like, where should I follow up with, but uh, the, I'm just kind of curious, because, like, you know, uh, I'm a big comic fan myself, but, like, uh, how did you get started into, you know, getting, learning how to ink or draw or uh, comics, like, like, did you go to, by materials online, did you go to, um, a class or something like that or like what, what made you get started and i know with zines zines are just you know uh can be any size but paper folded and they could be like xerox pages or something like that or and stapled or whatever like that or a more mine were a bit more professional than yeah. that okay i would say they were actually mini comics yeah i would take i always made my web comics at print at print dots per inch that is to say 600 dpi usually when you look at something on your computer it's it may be 72 dpi on a non-retina device Mm -hmm. so i would make things at 600 dpi and then i'd shrink them down to 72 to put them on uh to put them on the screen Mm -hmm. but i'd always have those master files which were print quality and Mm -hmm. it was very easy for me to find a good printer who could do a do a saddle stitched uh book Mm -hmm. send them over to them and have mini comics printed at about half the size of a regular comic so it was easy to fit in a back pocket that was very important to me these had to be the size that young women could slip into their backpack and take with them to school okay and let's see well you asked where did i get started learning learning how to make comics i've most cartoonists when you ask them that question will say i've been drawing since i was a little kid and that's true but what they don't tell you not all the time, but if you probe a little bit, is that they're actually they started and they were terrible. None of us were were child savants who made beautiful artwork right out of the out of the fresh out of the gates, so to speak. It took a lot of practice. I only started getting getting decent at art in general around I think age eighteen. And shortly thereafter I self published my first graphic novel, Eighteen Revolutions. I was very proud of, you know, being the first American teenager to self-publish her own graphic novel made by a girl for girls. Woo! And I sold it online through my website using an Oscommerce shopping cart. We didn't have Etsy or Shopify or any of these plug-and-play solutions back then. You have, if you wanted to sell things online, you were either on eBay or you were selling things on your, your own website. So I was forced to learn how to build websites so that I could sell the things that I loved. I was kind of using the golden goose to make omelets. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that I could, uh, it, it wasn't until many years later when I was faced with my, my income crisis that I realized that I could make more on a weekend of web development than I could make in an entire week of comics. Mm. So I started making comics quite a long time ago. I improved my skills through practice, 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 mostly books. I was very isolated, so it was hard for me to get out to life drawing classes. I never got to take any formal classes in art until much, much later, and I wasn't able to do the full run. I I tried to go to college for a communication arts associate's degree at our local community college, but I ended up making money as a web developer and had to shelve that project until I could, uh, until such time as I had time to get back to it, but I haven't had the time yet. What um, comics would you say uh, were your biggest influence? Hmm. 
Well, when I was a little girl, I was a huge fan of Marvel's X-Men, specifically Rogue and Gambit. And I collected the Rogue and Gambit miniseries. And I watched the X-Men cartoon, which was actually how I learned that there were X-Men comics. And I enjoyed those very much for several years until I started turning into one of those preteen young ladies. And my taste changed a little bit. I discovered this thing called Sailor Moon, which was imported from Japan. It was a, mm-hmm. a girl's cartoon specifically about a group of, well, they were female superheroines and they're kind of no boys allowed. And it, it was really inspiring for me to see this show that was entirely tailored for women. Well, for young, young ladies, that is. And I realized that I was much more interested in this show than I was in X-Men. And that's what was a really big influence both on my art style and on my storylines. I stopped writing comics, little sad, poorly, poorly drawn comics about superheroes and started drawing comics about, you know, women fighting crime, sometimes just being teenage girls, that sort of thing. And it was all very expressive. Since then, I don't read many comics anymore, but I still keep an eye on one or two artists that are very, uh, very influential to me today. That would be uh, the Japanese artist Junko Mizuno and Ron Wimberly, who is not Japanese, but greatly influenced by Japanese artists as well. He recently did the graphic novel Prince of Cats, which is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet from Mercutio's point of uh, perspective. And it's, it's actually, it, it's really fantastic. And I recommend it to anyone who's, who enjoys graphic novels nice. or Shakespeare. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Please do. It's great work. That was Prince of Cats, right? Prince of Cats. Is is Cats with a K? No, just C. Oh, okay. That's, how, that's amazing how I wrote it. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, um, so did you, when you created your own comics, I just went like, uh, did you create them digitally or did you, did you like analog or? Well, funny you should say that. Uh Recently, my husband and I are getting ready to move to Brooklyn in New York City, and I've been having to deal with all of these papers and uh, drawings and comic book pages from back when I used to make all of these comics uh, on Bristol Board. My workflow was that I would draw the comics on Bristol Board, ink them, paint them, all those things, then scan them into the computer and add the gray tones and the lettering in Photoshop. And that was a very nice workflow. But since then, I've found a program called Manga Studio, Uh which does a brilliant job of reproducing uh, a natural pen stroke using a stylus. Photoshop and Illustrator don't reproduce pen strokes very well at all. Uh So Manga Studio basically allows me to cut out all the penciling, the inking, and the scanning and start doing the drawing directly into my computer. Uh I don't have any finished boards from two years from two years ago, it all stopped then. And now I do everything digitally. I I recently took all of my boards and handed them over to a a family friend of ours for archiving because Mm. I'm just not producing anymore and I don't want to take them all with me to New York. Mm. Well, so are you worried about like, or is there a concern about um, the style of a hand-drawn analog kind of like that's, you know, then gone through like, a printing process that's you know more digital now these days, and you lose that kind of like tactile impression on the on the piece of paper than a digital 
uh, comic, like 100% digital comic that you draw with a Mega Studio? There's no loss of quality. If anything, Mega Studio allows me to undo my my mistakes a lot more cleanly than a bottle of whiteout does. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I really love Manga Studio because I have a very clean ink line. It's, uh, you'll see this also in any of my web designs. I love flat design because it's so crisp and clean. And I've always avoided gradients and those sorts of things. Even in my comics, I very much like black and white, crisp lines. A lot of people ask me, did you draw this in Illustrator? Because these look like vectors. <laughs> uh, but it's not. It's very organic. I, I love the, the line of a hand-drawn uh, a hand-drawn piece of artwork. And I don't see a difference between what I produced on paper and what I produced in the computer. Yeah. I think the things in the computer tend to look a lot better. The only, the only loss is that I no longer have an artifact from the production of that, yeah. uh, of this object. I know many artists will refuse to change, uh, from one system to another. And some people have had their techniques and the whole appearance of their artwork change when they make this shift. Yeah. But I don't have that problem. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I just I just feel like um, the the way that the you know of course comics have changed over the you know like the last decade or so, and it's just a lot more is packed into a comic now, thanks to you know the digital revolution and industry and some of that. So um, absolutely. Yeah. All right, and then um, yeah, and then I mean just uh, to date the podcast a little bit, but we just had Adobe Max come out and. Uh, Adobe uh, with announcements from Adobe that they're coming out with their new, like their first hardware products. And the hardware products include, uh, I'm not sure if you saw it, uh, Rachel or, or Sam, but I, uh, I did see the ruler. The ruler is freaking unreal, but uh, also the pen, they came up with a pen. I forgot what it's called, what the pen is called, but uh, you know, um, it's like a, just a whole new stylus um, that they were like, they, they looked at styluses that are out there and like they didn't like any of them. And of course, they don't they don't sell any of them. But uh, so now they will, they want a stylus to sell. And uh, I just you know I don't sure you saw the stylus, but I want to get your impressions I, I on did. that. Yeah, I think I think it's really cool. I haven't had the chance to check. Does this work with iPads or does it work with any um, any? Does it need to work with a pressure sensitive surface or does it sort of record what it's doing directly into itself? It, it looks like it works on the iPad. Yeah. Okay. I've been looking for a pressure sensitive stylus that works with the iPad for a long time mm -hmm. because the only part of my workflow that still remains analog is sketchbooks. Mm -hmm. I like to carry a sketchbook with me and I would love it if I could just carry a digital device with me and do everything with the digital device. Yeah. I, I know that this sketchbook is very sentimental for most people, but I'm always going to scan and upload everything I do, and that right. takes time. Right. So it'd be nice if I could just, you know, click a button and it would be on, uh, online for everyone to give me feedback on. Right. So I'm excited about those things, but yeah. I am wary of Adobe getting into the hardware market. It's it's very competitive. You have companies like Wacom already there. I'm not sure how this is going to affect their working relationship, considering that Adobe and Wacom have been like best buddies since high school. And I mean, Wacom's already had something very similar that was a failed product uh, that allowed people to draw onto paper and the pen would record their brush strokes and upload it to their computer. Right. And that failed before it ever was uh, fully released. Mm -hmm. So I do wonder if Adobe is going to be able to make profit on this. And considering they've been a software company for so long, either their product will work really, really well with their, their products and no one else's, or it's possible that they just might not have the 
the hardware finesse that companies like Apple and Wacom do to pull it off. Yeah, I think they, um, for me, with my views on Adobe is that um, they got smacked with the whole flash on iOS devices. Yeah. And they realized that they saw Apple go from second uh, banana, if you will, to, to Microsoft to a juggernaut. And within a span of like, I don't know how many years have we had the iPhone? But, um, and they've, you know, they've totally Mac app stored their software now. It's subscription based, uh, also, which is, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of app store ish. And they saw that Apple owns hardware to software. Mm-hmm. And that allows so much innovation in between there. And so they have to enter the hardware space. I think in, like a company like Adobe has to be there uh, in that. So they, so whether it's a failure or not, they just, they have to like, with the first pin, I don't think it's, a, it's an issue or not. But, but, and also they're tapping into the whole ecosystem of, uh, with a demonstration that they showed is like, oh, well, with this pin, I can draw this. And then since I'm hooked up to Wi-Fi, and I've logged in with this app that has my Adobe credentials. I can just, you know, bam, store it into a palette library or whatever of, of icons. And then I can pull it up, you know, on iPhone or the desktop and so like that and play with it. So, that, so in that way, they could take a loss with the hardware, but they could still uh, get the money from the software development side of it too. So in order to make it all work. So I would love it if their pen being like super awesome would actually work with a Mango Studio um, um, like an app, so because I feel like that's where I've I failed. I've tried several times to use a, a stylus with a Wacom tablet, and it just it never really clicks. And so I just uh, so. I have actually two styluses. I have a Wacom that I keep at home, and I have a I have a oh my gosh, uh, what is it called? It's like a mono price, and it's a fifty dollar kind of a Wacom ripoff. <laughs> But I ordered it when I was in Portland for a month last year because I needed to draw some comics and I didn't want to take my Wacom with me through, you know, the, the process of checking bags, et cetera. It was just too expensive. I think a Wacom costs like, oh, I don't know, $300, $400, depending on what model you're getting. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got the monoprice version. It works really well. The drivers are on par with Wacom's. And it, it's getting a lot of love from the artist's environment these days. But I would love to have a stylus to take with me because I think that would be even more compact. And carrying around, I mean, you know, just the pen, not necessarily the tablet with the stylus surface. If I could just have a pen that I could slide into my bag, that would make my workflow even better. Yeah. So let's transition a little bit to um, CSS animation because I know, um, you know, you spent a talk to, CSS DevConf uh, Honolulu, and uh, you spoke there, and and one of the things I saw, as we, like on our end, like as we were preparing for the conference, was your tweet stream was all about preparing for your talk at, well, not all about, but like most of it was like I'm like you know working on this uh, presentation for CSS DevConf, and it was you know, and can you just tell people like you know to tell uh, in your own words like what your presentation was about and. And, um, and what the experience was. Sure. It. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things is I, I wasn't sure if I was actually going to get accepted to CSS DevConf for a long time. So to make sure that I would get accepted, I tried to submit 
two two ideas. One was on responsive web design, and the other was on CSS animations. My inspiration was I'd seen what you could do with CSS animations that you could imitate essentially. Um, Theoretically, you could imitate traditional cell animation using CSS Animate's uh, steps timing function. And I also knew that you could loop audio using HTML5 audio, and I thought it would be possible to do a pure CSS and HTML5 music video just using uh, animations and the audio element. So I, I did this crazy submission, which <laughs> is like, I'm going to show you guys how to make music videos using just CSS3 and HTML5 audio and possibly a little bit of JavaScript thrown in there. Yeah. And I thought, ha, if they accept this, ah, it's going to be so awesome. I'm going to blow people away. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I forgot about it and wandered <laughs> off and, and wandered off and started experimenting with it. And then I heard back from them that, yes, you're in. Uh, be sure to come over. And, oh, I had to get the lead out for that. I think I, I spent Thanksgiving... Uh, I think we had an entire week off for Thanksgiving and I spent the whole time working on my talk. And while I was working on it, 24ways.org, I ended up asking them if they'd like me to write a little something about it that dovetailed in. And they were game for that. And I'm actually glad that I had to do the 24ways.org article on flashless animations before I came to CSS DevConf because I ended up going through a, a lot of hurdles to make that article that informed how I wrote my talk for CSS DevConf. What, what I, hurdles I, did you have to? What did you say? What, what hurdles did you have to? Cover? Well, there were a lot of things that I didn't realize uh, would be a lot easier than I thought they'd be, and some things were harder. For instance, things like, that turned out to be easier than I thought they'd be. When it comes to syncing animations with audio, for what I was doing, I didn't actually need to use JavaScript to sync between them. JavaScript timing uh, is really inaccurate. So I thought that when things would change, I would have to have use a callback or set timeout or something to let the CSS know what was expected of it. But it turns out that I was just able to run the CSS and the the, the audio in parallel, and they would just time up naturally, kind of like synchronizing swatches. Mm-hmm. So that was something that was easier than I thought it would be, although I banged my head back against it a couple of days. But what was harder was actually uh, the HTML5 audio did not natively loop as well as I expected it to. There was always a little gap at the end as right. the browser would re, what is it, reinstate a new audio object. <laughs> no, it just takes a little bit extra time. And I had to hunt around for a hack for that, and I came up with two solutions. One was you could use HTML5, um, you, could use a, you could use web audio API, which only works in Chrome or mm-hmm. uh, WebKit-based browsers. And, and how would that work, just like... Like, how does that solution work? I, that is really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> the web audio API is pretty easy to use once you, gain, um, once you gain an understanding of it. It's just, you know, you get an input and you get an output, usually like either your speakers and uh, HTML5 audio, those are great inputs, or you could use even a keyboard hooked up to your computer and your output is usually your speakers, but it could be another program. And then you put some nodes in between and you use JavaScript to tell things what you want to, want to happen. Basically, it, it's using, uh, as I put it, a pipe wrench to open pistachios with for him <laughs> simple loop. It's, it's way overkill. And because it only works in WebKit browsers, I was kind of hoping to have my demo work in Firefox too. So I ended up using 
a seamlessloop.js uh, hack, which basically does a little feature detection and uh, plays with timing a bit to cover up those gaps based on what browser you're using. It's not elegant, but it's not overkill either. So you win some, you lose some. It was, the funny thing was that Seamless Loop JS didn't exist until about a month before I started working on, working on my talk in earnest. Yeah. So my procrastination for working on the talk, it actually played out to my favor mm-hmm. as most of the things that I would have gotten snagged on were being solved within that month. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a very cutting-edge field to be in right now, uh, watching all of these things coming together. It's very exciting. So, so anyway, the whole CSS DevConf was wonderful. I was so happy to be there. I think I was the only person talking about this particular talk, but I just saw the different talks up for voting uh, on the CSS DevConf site yesterday, and there are so many talks about these sorts of things now, animations and audio. I'm excited. I hope I get to go this year because I just know there are going to be some talks I'm not going to want to miss. Where would you recommend um, somebody who doesn't know that much about the audio side of it start? HTML5 Rocks has some excellent, excellent, excellent web audio tutorials on it by Chris Wilson. And also there is a book from Ob- O'Reilly on the Web Audio API, which is an excellent place to start. I've read most of it by now, and it's 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 a great primer. It's well written and very comprehensive. I'll have to check that out and send that to some students. Wonderful. And Firefox, by the way, is getting very close to implementing the API as well. They're hoping to have it out for version 24. Version 24 just makes me feel old. <laughs> I still remember version 14 <laughs> and version 2. <laughs> so and it's so what would you say like are there any like like issues with CSS animation that you have not specifically the music part but like like what about is what do you feel about CSS animation and okay, where, where it is right now? Animation. I did actually give this, give my talk as sort of an open forum in New York City when I was up there for Web Visions, to a group of former, uh, a former Flash user group, huh. and that was that was a tough crowd. Let me tell you, <laughs> they heckled me good, but I gave the talk, and one of the main problems they had was, this isn't game. This isn't 100% ready for any version of IE lower than 10. IE10 uses actually has a full CSS animations implementation, and ostensibly that includes steps. But I haven't actually checked it out on IE10 yet, as I do not own a Windows device capable of running it at this time. The uh, so so I can't confirm that 100% yet. But this is a problem because when you have clients who come to you, you can't exactly tell them we have this wonderful uh, animation solution for you here if you'd like to do it. Ooh, let me put the caveat on there that it's not going to work for pretty much anyone who uses Internet Explorer with the exception of like 10% of the market share or whatever it is. So very sad in that regard. It's it's just not ready for prime time for mass market use yet. But as far as um, our particular niche market, you know, web developers, designers, most of us, I think, aren't using IE at all. So it's very good there. And these techniques work absolutely great on 
uh, iOS devices with a few tweakings that are required because iOS devices, they don't play web audio API immediately. I mean, sorry, they don't play web audio automatically. You have to use a couple of hacks for that. But otherwise, uh, most of these uh, interactions translate perfectly over to iOS. So if you, I see this right now, it may not be ready for prime time for mass market consumption. Like I certainly wouldn't say that NBC.com should start running uh, an animated <laughs> an animated cartoon on their website right now. But I would say that this would be perfect for packaging up like a children's storybook with animations, like a, an app for selling on uh, iTunes or possibly even for the Kindle Fire. Hmm. So like a, like an like a EPUB? Yes, I see a, a lot of potential for this for creating uh, applications, interactive applications, mm. and animated applications that don't suck on battery life. And that brings me to one of my other bones, which is we were talking about Adobe earlier, and Adobe has a product called uh, Animate, Adobe Edge Animate. Mm. And it's about two years behind the curve, last I checked, as far as its output goes. It uses JavaScript to do a lot of its animations. Mm -hmm. And that's very expensive for the CPU and the battery. Mm -hmm. So as you imagine on mobile devices it, uh, or an iPad or something like that, it would absolutely just suck on the battery and make things not so pleasant for the, the user, possibly even result in a janky experience. Right. So I, I know I've run into, as I give these talks, many people who are excited about animating in the browser, a lot of designers who've been looking for a user interface like Flash used to offer to bring their stories to life for the web. And they've been experimenting with Edge Animate. And it worries me because I don't want outputs like that running on people's devices. This is very expensive code that's coming out here. And uh, this is one of those instances where I feel like either the people who want to tell these stories will need to invest in learning these skills or, or the market needs to come up with an excellent user interface that outputs equally excellent code. Yeah, well, I noticed um, Jeffine actually demonstrated an animation tool during his Adobe Max but, um, presentation, but I didn't, I didn't know what the output was, so... But, um, so I'm not sure if they've, they've updated the uh, the animation output from JavaScript. But I know, like back in the day, with you know when dynamic HTML, DHTML was like so big that Dreamweaver would just you know export this huge amount of JavaScript. And so that you know, so when I see that, like I have this bias. I guess it's like old old guy bias. Just like oh, you're just going to just dump a whole bunch of JavaScript into my web page. Thank you. So. You're going to recoil a little bit thinking about that. Yeah. I think it's hard for any machine to create perfectly optimized JavaScript. I've, I've never seen any piece of software generate JavaScript that was worth running in production. Mm. But I, that might just, I'm not sure if that is something that's intrinsic to JavaScript or intrinsic to code, coding in general, or if maybe we just don't have the right people developing these tools. So if someone were to start learning about CSS animations and, you know, where would you point them to? Ah, yes. Once again, HTML5 Rocks is a really excellent place to start. Estelle Wheel does a lot of um, really good slides about HTML, uh, sorry, CSS animations as well, if you check out her GitHub account. Um, personally, I say that I'm working on a workshop for WebVisions Portland right now about an introduction to traditional animation 
via CSS animation and transitions, and it's going to be excellent. I'll have those. Uh, I will have that workshop up on my GitHub account very soon. Mostly, though, I've been learning from watching the Mozilla Developers Network and reading their documentation, as well as playing around on CodePen. People usually post interesting things that they've been doing with CSS animations on CodePen.io, mm -hmm. which is Chris Coyer's pet project, and I love CodePen.io. I, I end up having this... Anytime anyone talks to me about learning CSS animations or, you know, my, my career, where what I use to bring my things to life, I always say that CodePen, uh, CodePen has really changed my career as far as I'm concerned. All of these talks that I've been giving about CSS animations, all of my demos, they're all on CodePen. And I don't think I'd be able to show people uh, the code that I use to make the visual interaction as easily uh, with any other tool as I do with CodePen. Mm -hmm. So it, it's great if you want to see, you know, end result and ingredients right on the same page. It's much more, I think, intuitive than something like JS Fiddle and certainly more pleasant to look at. Not to mention, you can do a, a quick search through their database to find what's up already. I have a CodePen account, just Rachel Neighbors, my name, where you can see all of my work in action. And if you're a bit of a reverse engineer, you can probably figure out most of these techniques on your own. I, I know definitely with teaching, that's completely changed for me because of CodePen. I can do a demo in class if somebody has a question real quick without having to set up all the files necessary. Everything's linked through and the students love it. And they're actually becoming more confident because they are doing their reverse engineering. Mm -hmm. um, with what a, whatever is already on there. So they're able to see, okay, if I take out this line, what does it do? And it saves them a lot of time. So I completely agree with you on that. And I'm really liking the uh, Tuna's walk cycle. Thank I'm you. staring at that for about an hour straight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you seen it with the music yet? Haven't played it with the music yet. Just watching Tuna walk around. So, Maybe so. after the podcast, uh, Tuna, I might add here, and, and uh, pardon me for interrupting, but Tuna is actually a character from my comics back in the day. I used to have two characters, Rachel the Great, obviously, my uh, alter ego, as it were, and Tuna, her faithful talking cat sidekick, who was actually, I think, to this day, more popular than she ever was. Tuna... <laughs> Tuna remains a fan favorite, and I brought him over to use for my animation examples because I was so familiar with drawing his form. And humans are harder to make look realistic in movement for these demos than cats are. I mean, a catwalk cycle is a very easy thing to reproduce, especially if you have some pictures of cats, which I do. So Tuna has become sort of a mascot for the work I'm doing today and the work I used to do tomorrow. He's branched over to, into a different field. And I, I just love that people are still huge fans of Tuna wherever I go. So is, since you have Rachel the Great as your alter ego, does Tuna have a real life cat? Tuna did have a real life cat. Unfortunately, oh, no. the real Tuna died of feline leukemia quite some oh, time no. ago. But I promised him I would make him immortal. So he lived on through my comics and now through my code. Nice. I'm sorry, Chris. Did you have something to say? <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I was, my question was like, uh, can you, for the audience, can you just uh, tell, uh, can you describe who Tuna is? And then York, you just did that. So. There's actually a, uh, a really cool web, web audio API toy called Tuna that's produced by the guys at Dynamo. That's spelled like 
two names, Dinah and Mo. Mm. And they're actually a really interesting company that I've been following for a while. They work with soundscapes or sound engineers, and they used to be in Flash, and now they work in web audio as well. And it's fascinating to see the sort of work that they do and all the skills that they bring from that, that area. It's just a beautiful example of a company that can do a transition like that. They're about audio first, tools second. Mm-hmm. But their tool is called, one of these tools they made is called Tuna, spelled just like the fish. And I have been hoping for a long time that they'd let Tuna the cat be the mascot for Tuna. Cool. Have you written to them or...? I, I have suggested it on Twitter. I think I have to do something with Tuna to impress them enough to use Tuna as okay. Tuna's mascot. Okay. <laughs> a, code, a code pen, perhaps. Yeah. Yes. So it's in the works. Uh, after I'm done with all of my workshops and my talks, maybe I can get something out when I can fit it in the next Thanksgiving break I have. <laughs> <laughs> and if they won't take them, I, I believe, isn't there a JS for cats resource? I oh, think... Actually, yes, I think I did contact them about Tuna as a mascot once and got a similar uh, tongue-in-cheek reply. Mm-hmm. What can I say? I see a lot, of, a lot of places where Tuna could put his paw prints. <laughs> nice. Cats are very popular on the Internet. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I do want to talk about, you have a blog post about um, JavaScript and how, how designers can get into JavaScript. Yes, yeah. Java, JavaScript for designers. Okay. Um, what would you like? What would you say is a good way for designers who are afraid of programming to get started? Like, whoa. Uh, well, there's one book you have to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it. Let me see. Hang on a minute. To my website. I want to make sure that I get everyone's name and book titles correct because if I use the wrong name, it will be very hard for listeners to find what I'm talking about. So let's see. What have I got here? The book is actually called JavaScript Enlightenment, mm-hmm. and I'm a big fan of it. It's by Cody Lindley. It was written for, uh, for people coming into front-end development from a non-programming background. Mm-hmm. I feel that that is where we have a lot of difficulty with onboarding non-developers here is that most of the books on JavaScript are written by developers, for developers, or, or programmers, as it were. A developer mm-hmm. is a rather broad term, but... Uh, they, so all of this vocabulary, all of this background programming knowledge is assumed. And I'll give you a really good example of this. After I wrote this post, a couple of companies uh, sent me books to read and review about JavaScript. And I've been taking my time getting to each one in turn. And I had already read JavaScript Enlightenment by Cody Lindley when it was a, and it still is a free PDF online, which I recommend any designer interested in JavaScript reads that PDF first. It's not that big. And it's very concise. It's very easy to understand. It explains core concepts like, what does an object look like? And for the longest time, I, everyone told me, you should just read JavaScript, the good parts. That'll bring you up to speed. And I'd open this book, and I'd read it, and it would start by talking about objects and object-oriented programming and how this was different from functional programming because of blah, 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 and prototypal inheritance. And all of this is Greek to me. I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't even know what an object is. I have a vague, hazy idea of what a job object is. When I read JavaScript Enlightenment, and there was an actual diagram of what an object looks like. It's key-value pairs. It's a collection of key-value pairs. It's a table. It's a table. I had a moment where I was so annoyed because every programmer I'd ever met assumed that I knew what this looked like, and I had no clue that it was so simple, and I would have understood so much more if someone had slowed down to explain that part to me. So 
I definitely don't advise anyone coming uh, wanting to learn more about JavaScript jumps in with any of these books that have been written for people who are programmers. And one book I got, which I won't give the name of yet because I'm not done with it and not prepared to give a full verdict on it yet. It claimed to be written for programmers. I mean, what is it? Claimed to be written for anyone new to JavaScript, including designers. And uh, if you're, you know, a programmer, you might skip the introductory chapter. Okay. So I read the introductory chapter. And within the first 17 pages, I believe it started using words like method without explaining what a method is Mm -hmm. to people who don't know what a method is, a method, uh, well, or even what a function is. A method is a function that belongs to an object. It's anyway, it's, you could say that a method is a function of an object. And unless you know what an object is, that means nothing. Unless you know what a function is, that means nothing. These, these basic building blocks, you need to understand them so that you have that vocabulary. And it also helps to have a basic vocabulary uh, in, you know, what is, what is object-oriented programming? Got to understand what an object is before you can understand what that is. So these books are filled with comparisons between programming languages and vocabulary and terms that designers just aren't going to know. And none of it will sink in. So they walk away with much less than they should from investing this time into reading these books. So where to start if you're a designer who wants to learn JavaScript? Hmm, there's not a whole lot of good places just yet. I cannot, I cannot recommend JavaScript Enlightenment much uh, enough. I hope that I can recommend other resources more in the future. Well, no, uh, Rebecca Murphy, who you, you list as a... Uh, um one of the people to follow in the JavaScript area, um, then she, she published, uh, a self-published a, a tutorial for JavaScript. Wow. Did she, I must've missed that. Yeah. She published it. And then I think she didn't want to like work on updating and flushing it out. So I think she put it on GitHub actually. And so, um, are you sure that wasn't, uh, the jQuery, what is now the jQuery documentation? Um, I don't think so. I could be wrong on that, but uh, she like learned jQuery. She started that a long time ago. Uh-huh. Then, then she moved on to Dojo. So she left it open to the public. And then jQuery came back and said, "We like this. We want to. We want to work on this." And okay. expanded it on GitHub. So that might be what you're talking about. Yeah, learn jQuery uh, repo. Yeah. So I'm not sure jQuery is the best place to start with learning JavaScript because I started with JavaScript. I mean, I started with jQuery because it was there are more tutorials on how to get things done with jQuery than there are for JavaScript. Mm-hmm. But using jQuery is sort of, hmm, how do I put this? It's sort of like using Edge Animate to animate. You don't entirely know what's happening. You know the syntax, but you don't understand why. Mm-hmm. So learning vanilla JavaScript to start is really good because then you'll have a better idea of why is there a dollar sign in this statement? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. And so in vanilla JavaScript is? Vanilla JavaScript is just plain old JavaScript. Okay. It's not jQuery. It's not Dojo. There's no library involved. It's just plain JavaScript run in your browser. I like how we have to have a word to define that fact that we're using JavaScript. Like we just can't just say JavaScript. We have to say JavaScript, JavaScript. We have to say like vanilla JavaScript. You know, in order well, to part of that is because, and I hear this a lot when I speak to, uh, to designers, they'll say, now, is that jQuery or JavaScript? And there's a bit of a disconnect that jQuery is JavaScript. Mm-hmm. JavaScript. Um, it's just a, a, a library that you work with. Mm-hmm. And that's something that has to be driven home, that you are working with JavaScript, but you're working with a library and a flavor of JavaScript. Well, I think it's a little bit better than trying to tell people Java is not JavaScript. 
<laughs> that does need to be spelled out very frequently, especially to recruiters. Yes. Cool. Okay. Well, I think we're listen. I did like um, you did. You did mention that at the beginning that you um, transition transition from comics for a web job uh, to get health insurance. Yes. Right. And so, like, and that's one of the things. Like, I think we talked about on the, on on the tweet machine about uh, unions and healthcare and stuff like that, and um, the state of it. So, I mean, I know like uh, this is the gotcha question, by the way. Just want to let you know. Um, okay. Yeah. There, I mean, is, did you do did you find any unions out there, or did you? Not that you were looking for it, but um, did you like? Are there? Does anyone here know about unions for for web developers and stuff like that? So, I know like back in the nineties, there were. Uh, you know, especially with this big rush of people trying to get into web stuff that they we need like uh, probably unionize and get some uh, benefits and get some all the benefits of a union. Um, and I'm not really sure what their state is and whatnot. So, from what I heard of the tail end of that conversation mm-hmm. uh, that started was that we don't have anything now. Mm-hmm. There have been some starts, and there have been, there are some organizations, not specifically for web developers, but for satellite areas like web design um, and and UX, there are some associations that people buy memberships in, Mm -hmm. but that none of these associations do collective bargaining or have collective lawyers available in them. I I was thinking about this because I was watching an animator that I'm friends with. I I like to follow animators as well as cartoonists. I mean, sorry, comicers. Uh, Animators actually are... I often find that what they learn is more applicable to web design these days than maybe it's just that I've learned everything there is to know about comics and nothing surprises me anymore, but I'm still surprised by the sorts of interactions that animators come up with and their insights to how humans perceive the internet. So I've been following a bunch of animators and one of them was having a discussion about how a large company had asked him to do something that he felt wasn't appropriate. And they were telling him, you need to report that to the guild. And, you know, they'll, they'll get right on that because that's totally not good and not cool. And it, it surprised me that we don't have anything like that. There are companies that do bad things in our industry, but nobody says you need to report that to the association. Mm-hmm. They'll get right on that. And there's no, you know, web developers, health insurance collective, nothing like that here. And I came to the conclusion that the reason we don't have anything like that is that right now web developers are so in demand and can make so much money that it's not really an issue mm-hmm. and that we haven't standardized job descriptions yet and we don't have firm definitions and firm needs yet. But I suspect in the next, I don't know, maybe 20 years, the need for something like this will continue to to mount. There's some need for it right now and there will probably be more need for it as more people go into work for themselves in areas where healthcare is hard to find and they get older and they have more health problems and it becomes harder to buy their own when they want to start their own business, et cetera, et cetera. So right now, I think this is a sim- there, there is nothing available and I think it's a symptom of this being a young, fairly lucrative industry, but it will change as we get older. Well, I mean, it, it's, it's young, but it's still, it's been around for like two decades plus now or whatever, but I think it would it be fair to say that's also a symptom of an industry which kind of just uh changes like every three to four years it does do that um 
I think that the changing every several years makes it hard for us to sit down and figure out, you know, this person is this level and these are the acceptable rates for them to be paid because a front-end developer today is completely different from a front-end developer 10 years ago. There weren't even front-end developers 10 years ago. We had interaction developers 10 years ago and they had to know Flash and DHTML and probably BB script and all kinds of things. But now it's very different. So that is, it is hard to standardize job titles and expectations and career paths. It's very fluid, very liquid. Perhaps some companies like Adobe are getting tired of the roller coaster and trying to go into hardware because it's less vomit inducing. (laughs) I don't know. Some of of their fireworks crashes uh, are vomit inducing. Um. (laughs) Oh gosh, remind me. I lost an entire project once during a Firefox crash. There was no way to retrieve the file. Oh, man. Oh, geez. Well, awesome. well I think um, about a good time to um, wrap it up. Um, can you let people know how they can find you on the on the Internet? Oh, sure. Excellent. Um, if you would like to find me on the Internet, I highly recommend that you follow me on Twitter. I'm Rachel Neighbors. That's... R-A-C-H-E-L-N-A-B-O-R-S, just like Jim. And you can also find me on, uh, let's see, my website is rachelneighbors.com, and my Twitter is just rachelneighbors. And you can find me also on GitHub as rachelneighbors. See, I normalized everything last week, so I'm pretty much the same name anywhere. And on CodePen, I'm Rachel Neighbors. So I look forward to seeing you on one of those sites. Pick your poison. Cool, awesome. Great. Um, thanks to Chris from Canada for pushing the buttons that make the podcast go. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at iChris on your iDevice of choice. Thanks to Sam Cap for being my co-host for today. Thanks for having me. Oh, that's awesome. And thanks to you, the listeners. Uh, it would be great if you could rate us up on iTunes. I believe we've been stuck at 24 written reviews for the last six months. So if you want to like be awesome listener number 25 reviewer, Now's your chance. Go for it. Uh, our thanks to Rachel Neighbors for joining us on today's Non-Breaking Space. Thank you for having me. It's oh. been a lot of fun. Oh, it was great. Thanks. Okay, until next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.